Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd like to ask you to do two simple things. First, if you could leave us a review on your chosen podcast player. And second, if you could share or send this link to another grassroots coach. Those two things will help us spread the word about the podcast and grow our community. Welcome to the Athletic Evolution Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Owen Satterley. Over the last 19 years, Owen has worked with youth, senior, international and professional athletes, as well as working within the entertainment and corporate health industries, spending time working in London, Australia and New Zealand. He also has a history as an athlete in rugby, CrossFit and Olympic weightlifting. So welcome to the podcast, Owen. Thanks for sparing us your time. Thanks for having me, Rob. So for those who haven't come across you before, give us a bit of a background in terms of how you got involved in sport and how that's kind of led up to what you're doing today. Um, well, as you can probably tell by my accent, I'm Welsh. Uh, I was, I was, I think I was born with a rugby ball in my hand. Um, um, I had very supportive parents, kind of rugby, judo, hockey, badminton, athletics, you name it. Um, and I was, I was okay at everything, I guess, which um, really um, meant that that was, and with with kind of ADHD tendencies, sport was a huge outlet for me. Um, but I was uh, I was a late developer. I was a very late <laughs> kind of bloomer, um, and uh, always felt that from a rugby perspective, because that was my main sport, that I always needed to be bigger, faster, and stronger, or at least try to get there. Which led me to discover another weight room at my local rugby club at like fourteen or fifteen. Um, and completely self-guided. I mean, the internet wasn't, uh, there weren't many things accessible. That was about 1994, 90, 90, 95. Um, and so um, it was, uh, you were training with people who had a bit more experience in inverted. Um, but um, the whole process of that and seeing physical changes really made me curious about how the body worked and, and like what stress you placed upon it to, uh, kind of elicit those adaptations, I guess, when you kind of look back at it now. Um, yeah, and it made me really curious of that whole process. And when you, you get to 17, 18 years of age and kind of realise that um, probably sport itself as an athlete is not going to be my career, um, but I would still like to work with athletes and prepare athletes. Um, so that was kind of it, really. I was a frustrated sports person, which I guess is almost like a... It's like a cookie cutter answer from kind of most people. <laughs> most, yeah, people are, most people who end up working as an SSC coach, right? Um, is that uh, we love the sport and we love all aspects of the sport from the technical to the technical to the physical development. And um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that was probably the only avenue that I was going to go down, really. So what did that lead to in terms of education and university and your first kind of steps in the coaching world? What, what, what did that look like? Yeah, well, um, I kind of botched my my A levels, which meant I didn't get to my first choice university or my second or my or my third. Um, and you start to kind of panic then, really, about whether or not um, you're going to be cut out for kind of learning and and higher education. But um, I went to university. I ended up studying a sports technology degree because that's pretty much all I could get on, really. Um, and there was huge elements of anatomy, physiology, and kinesiology, and and um, 
and all of those kind of topics um, and biomechanics. Um, but there was a huge element in that around um, the technology that was available in sport and equipment design and um, looking at kind of the engineering side of sport a little bit as well. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to I wanted to coach. I wanted to work in a gym environment. So following university, uh, I graduated in 2001. So it gives you an idea of, uh, of how old I am. Um, I wasn't really sure of exit routes or how, how to get into sport. I don't you know. There, there wasn't a clear kind of S&C pathway at that point in time. You know, the main route was probably a sports science degree rather than an S&C degree. So I went and did a 12-week personal training diploma. Um, and that then allowed me to, well, give me the confidence to start kind of training people with those two kind of, with the formal academic background and then a more vocational kind of qualification. Um, I started working in a gym in London, me and my, uh, my then girlfriend and now wife, um, moved to London for her music and, um, I started personal training. Um, in some really kind of nice and swanky gyms in and around uh, northwest London with a very affluent kind of population um, and that that was the start of my coaching career really because um, you have all of this kind of underpinning knowledge and then you have somebody placed in front of you who's this kind of human being with all of these kind of constraints on their life and, and a job and all of these kind of complicated kind of factors you've got to bring in and you start to realize that you've got no idea where where to start <laughs> with writing a program for someone. Um, and that was the start of the journey really in early 2002 by the time I was qualified as a personal trainer. And so yeah, it started in the, in the private sector with me kind of being a business owner. Um, and I did some traveling with that as well because you've got the flexibility to do so. So I spent some time working uh, in Sydney uh, with a friend of mine who was a gym owner out there. Um, and then came back to the UK and got into sport with Gloucester in the 2008 season, 2008-9 season. And then obviously, keeping with the Gloucester theme, you kind of ended up doing some work with Harbour Uni as well, didn't you? Yeah, so my time with... Um, with Gloucester, they train in they train at the Hartbury campus, um, and so the academy at Gloucester had several Hartbury players there. So there was a lot of communication between the two institutions about um, how to manage those boys' kind of playing programs because they would play in uh, the A League games of Gloucester. Um, the university would want them for the big kind of Bucks fixtures. And we're talking guys like Johnny May, Henry Trinder. Um, it was that kind of era that would just come into the end of their university degrees. So we had a, Harper had a pretty stellar lineup at that point in time. They had Matt Evans playing for them as well, who's a, who's a Canada international. Uh, Jack Forster, Andres Pretorius, who then played for the Blues in Wales. It was a, it was a cracking lineup. And because I was working there, um, I knew that uh, the SNC coach, even, and um, and managed to get the job there. Um, and people will wonder why, after a year in professional sport, you decide to go to an academic institution. Well, there's lots of reasons for that. I had a young child at the time, and my wife was pregnant with another. Um, and it just meant that my working week became Monday to Saturday with some exceptionally long days to slightly 
less long days and only Monday to Friday. Um, if you look at the salary for kind of academy rugby and academic institutions, there's also a difference there as well. Um, and so it just kind of made sense. And with Gloucester being right there, we still had, I still had that network um, of kind of premiership rugby and pro sport. But I mean, yeah, I ended up being a Hartbury for 10 years in the end. Um, it started with with just me as a as the SNC coach and the nutritionist and um, and the lifestyle advisor and kind of doing everything to um, for all of the athletes there. And we started with with five different sports academies, so probably around about 150 athletes from rugby to football, modern pentathlon, equine sports, and netball. And then by the time I left, we were with women's rugby, women's football coming on board, and rowing and and, and various other sports coming on board for, for, in terms of the academy state that's we were close to 400 athletes by the time I left and so it grew massively and I was a part of kind of driving the cause for maintaining the quality of coaching and bringing more full-time SNCs in and full-time nutritionist and lifestyle advisor so by the time I, I left we were a team of uh, 12 kind of support staff and that's not including the medical team either um, and as part of that 12, we had a full-time undergrad internship and a full-time kind of funded master's program there as well, which which took me a while to get off the ground. But um, that's been a really big, um, that was a big driver for me, was give um, up and coming and kind of aspiring coaches a, a kind of like a vehicle to actually be able to coach. And that was the beauty of offering that to students was that, you know, they weren't working with professional athletes. They would have, we actually gave them the opportunity to kind of program and and to coach and to be involved in the entire process of of the athletic development program that we had at the at the college and university. So what's, what would you describe as being your kind of why for getting into coaching? So you obviously mentioned, you know, having that kind of route fairly early on and, and having a few challenges thrown in the way. So what what was the driver for you to overcome all those challenges and get into coaching? What is it that's so attractive about coaching for you? Fundamentally, it's about helping people be better visions of themselves, really. And that started obviously with, with the general public. And when people are willing to invest in their health and fitness, um, you know, you get almost 100% kind of job satisfaction back when, when they're singing or when you see them succeed. Um, and then, you know, when you, you start to see them kind of become more self-confident, you see how that affects their relationships, how it affects um, their ability to kind of problem solve or just to be better human beings. And that was, a, that was a huge thing for me, like when I was at the college and university, you know, you're working with 16-year-old kind of kids moving away from home for the first time. Um, and you're... You might be part of their life for two years. They might stay at university. You might be part of their life for you know, five or six years. Um, at a really um, informative time in their lives, and to see them become more confident of who they are as not just an athlete but as a person, um, and the life skills that they develop, like it's, for me, that was a hundred percent kind of job satisfaction. Even when you control for and sociable hours and lots of traveling and all of the all of the pitfalls you know come along with it like helping people be better and become self-sufficient like that's in a nutshell that's it so obviously you've kind of 
continue that journey for 10 years and transition now. Are there any people or experiences that have had been, been significant influences in your coaching practice or just your journey as a practitioner? Yeah, I mean, very generally, um, the people I work with on a day-to-day basis, I think influence me the most from the successes to the failures. Um, and I, and I think more so that, you know, the mistakes and the frustrations were the biggest net positive experiences really. And when you're working in an environment that's massively under-resourced, but with really high expectations, um, um, there's a lot of frustrations, um, when, when coaches, um, one thing's done a certain way and you're not certain that it is, you know, you kind of learn to become more, more diplomatic. You learn to try and become a bit more empathetic. And I think the, uh, the fundamental skills that you learn in those environments, um, are, are the greatest experiences that you'll take away. Um, I know, and I'm really grateful for the, for the time that I've had, um, in, in that 10 year period at the university because there were huge challenges you know there were exceptionally long weeks um um there was uh athlete tears and 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 then you're dealing with parent tears and 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 all kinds of things but each and every one of those kind of experiences right down to the micro level of what goes on every day were, were were far and away the greatest experiences that I'll take away. You know, obviously I could go through a list of, of S&C coaches and kind of people who I think are mentors um, and they're absolutely fundamental. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people recently about, um, uh, I think it was uh, speaking to Grant Jenkins on on Twitter and, you know, he's, he's, he asks a lot of kind of heuristic and thought-provoking questions. Um, and one of them recently was, you know, what advice would you give your, your younger self? And it's like, find a mentor. Um, you know, because they will help to kind of guide and shape your practice and they'll, a really good mentor will ask you more questions and kind of stretch you that way. And so I, you know, I've written down a list in front of me of, of, of coaches that have really shaped my, my practice. Um, but right down at the fundamental level, the people who shaped my practice the most were the athletes that I worked with, the frustrated parents that I had to deal with. Um, and the sometimes unreasonable coaches that, <laughs> that we had to work with as well. Um, uh, and the only reason that you feel like they're being unreasonable is because they've got their vested interest in, in the outcome of every competition and whether or not the athletes are, are, are ready and prepared. Uh, and you get that because they're at the forefront of the ones that are, that are, that are under the greatest pressure. Um, so yeah, it's definitely my day-to-day experiences that, um, uh, I've been the greatest teacher. So do you have a working um, model or some principles that you follow in your coaching practice? Yeah, um, there's a couple of things that I hang my kind of my philosophy on. Um, and that's always to be evidence informed. Um, I think it's Alex Wolf that said to be, you know, kind of evidence informed and athlete centered. Um, and when I first started coaching, it was making sure that the athlete was at the center of that. But I was very blinkered in only seeing them as an athlete, you know, and not taking into consideration if you've got them for, you know, when you're working with Gloucester, they come in at seven o'clock in the morning and they leave like three in the afternoon, you know, what's going on in the rest of the day? Have they got children? You know, like I'm just not paying attention to, 
kind of those things and as you as you get a bit older and a bit more experienced and you start to work with younger kids living away from home you start to think oh, bloody hell how would I feel when I was 16 like I went to university at 18 and I, I still couldn't look after myself then so in like another two years before that like what are their anxieties missing home the academic pressures and stress when you start to put a person at the center of that it really starts to shape and affect your practice um, in terms of how you might speak to them understanding when the mock exams are and exam periods and all those kinds of things so it went from having having an athlete-centered program to having a person-centered program um, in terms of the nuts and bolts of that I want them to move well I want them to move load well and then I want them to move load really quickly and well without having to compromise the standard of that movement really um, and then in terms of how I would do that I try and reverse engineer from the required performance rather than engineering up from my service you know what do the athletes need to do what are the demands of the sport and also more explicitly how is the coach expecting them to play and then reverse engineering back from those points to um, try and build a solid program hmm. so tell us a bit more about that role at Hartbury so you mentioned obviously getting getting I guess it's still in their formative years at 16 17 18 athletes coming on board were there things that to you were, were obviously missing you know whether it's from a movement perspective like you mentioned or nutritionally or just life skills were there things that kind of maybe people wouldn't expect when they get an athlete that you think ah that's we're gonna have to fill that gap yes everything <laughs> <laughs> everything um just because of the sheer kind of diversity of sports at a college level um, you know, we were, a, we were a British rowing staff program. And so the head of the rowing program would go out to local schools and, and recruit. And, you know, the kind of the tall and talented, the old tall and talented program for rowing um, was very much um, find, find kids that are tall with a, with a big wingspan um, and, um, and bring them in. And so we, we had a couple of rowers, and I'll use rowing as an example because that was one of the sports that I actually was the SNC coach for kind of throughout my time there as well. Um, we had some kids coming in at 16, six foot six, plus with a, with a two point, with a, with a two meter, eight centimeter arm span, like femurs, 60, 70 meters <laughs> long. Um, and zero athleticism they've just been brought in because they had some good kind of scores with regards to some of the start kind of testing protocol um but in terms of movement patterns like if we were doing this visually mate I, i'd share some of the i was actually trawling back through some of um some of my notes recently and we obviously we would do a, a small movement screen and competency screen as part of it but um you know, these guys just had no idea where the end of their limbs were um, they had no idea what, how to move their body and organize their body in space. Um, and so it would be an incredibly fundamental program right from the start of teaching those fundamental movement skills. Um, and even with some of the core sports, you know, we get some very talented netballers in from, from around the country um, and they look great on court. 
that they've had no structured S&C background. So whilst they've been playing sports since they were 9, 10, 11 years old, they've got a um, a gym training age of, of zero. And so you're literally starting from a from a clean slate. Uh, but then from a rugby perspective, the spectrum is 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 massive. You've got some guys who've been in the DPP programme since they were 14, um, right the way through to coming to college at 16 and um, and then and then have been let go by whoever. Um, you know, we had a lot of Welsh guys coming up from the Dragons and from Ospreys, and they would get let go at kind of under 16 level and come to college. But they would have had some kind of um, gym experience, and sometimes there's bad habits that you've got to unpick there as well. So it was a real, real spectrum, really, of um, uh, of abilities and talents. And then you're dealing with 16 year olds moving away from home who've had their parents cook for them for for years and you know for their entire life, and have never really had to cook a meal or be aware of what good nutrition is in terms of making their own choices and so there's a huge education process there from that perspective we had you know guys coming into a rowing program where they'd be training twice a day six days a week plus doing four a levels and possibly we had some doing a pre-veterinary course as well and so getting them to understand you know the concepts of time management of prioritization of tasks of um the importance of rest recovery and sleep like all, all of these things so we were literally doing we'd have to cover every single the performance element and lifestyle kind of requirement to upskill them to a point that that they would be able to cope with the demands of what they were doing when they came to college and honestly the um the way in which 90% of them kind of would take on those challenges was just inspired, was, was utterly inspiring every day. Um, especially with, when I, when I look at Rowan as the example, you know, you've, that's a sport where you've got to be incredibly intrinsically driven because the chances of a, of a career in that sport, you know, and kind of earning money is, well, it's pretty much zero unless you're a funded athlete, um, you know, and, and, and they're doing it to try and, get into the GB squad and again the number of GB athletes that we actually had by the time I left was probably six, eight through different variations of the junior kind of structure. Um, we're hopeful to have a couple of Olympians next year and possibly two sisters that would be amazing um, and I still talk of them, about them like they're my athletes <laughs> is the uh, is a crazy thing because um, I love my time with them but yeah we needed to cover every single support service type element you know and we would use the physios to do a lot of that around kind of how how they manage their body and understanding of how important kind of uh, micro dosing mobility work and prehabilitative type exercises in was um once we had a nutritionist on board because i was doing all of the nutrition support until we brought a nutritionist in oh, about five years into me being there um you know and we would do a very fundamental basic um nutritional kind of pyramid really so getting them to understand fueling for the work required um how to time their meals appropriately and how to structure them appropriately and um and how to work within a set of guidelines and also provide some autonomy within that as well because you know you go up to the to the refectory at lunchtime or in the mornings for breakfast and you just see all of the you know you see 16 year olds making 16 year old kind of food choices um and that's fine for the general student who's at the college, but for somebody who's got maybe two to three to even four hours of training on a given day, it's, it's suboptimal. And so, yeah, we had to cover everything. 
So, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I experience the same thing. Like often people think, you know, it's really high level habits or it's high level um, kind of skills that people are building, you know, whether it's cooking skills or it's nutrition or it's, you know, how many grams of carbs you need or exactly what you should be doing. But actually it's really fundamentally basic things that let's be honest, most human beings need just to survive and live healthily. It's not necessarily a performance thing. So how did you go about that athlete education side of things? Was that one-to-ones? Was that workshops? Was that like, um, you know, hard copy kind of resources? How did you kind of combat that? Um, we would start with kind of interactive workshops, really. And we would do the fundamentals a bit like they would probably get a GCSE level PE and you know, a level PE around nutrition, you know, getting them to understand um, why they need to fuel as athletes. Um, you know, I think of food as fuel. Um, we would give them some problem solving things around, you know, what would they do when they've got a full day of lectures, but training is, you know, they finish lectures at half three, but training starts at four. So how would they deal with that in terms of meal timings and what their options be? And so we try to do things quite interactively and get them to problem solve and try and figure out with the resources they've got, because at the under 18 blocks in their rooms and in their kind of in a social space, they would have a kettle, a toaster, and a microwave. Um, and in their rooms, they might have their own fridge to store some stuff, you know, kind of milk and various other bits. And so, you know, what would they do around a pre-training snack and get them to come up with options and then try and guide them and get them to see how many options that they actually have. Um, and some of them got really quite creative with things as well. Um, and we would do things that way. We would, some of these smaller academies like Rowan and Mod Pentathlon, where we're only talking maybe 10 to 15 athletes rather than an entire kind of 40 man rugby squad. Um, we take them to the supermarket as well and actually do things in the supermarket. So we'd walk around as a group and we'd, we'd read labels and get them to do like a bit of a supermarket sweep and, and give them a five pound budget to either do a pre-training or post-training snack or a meal. Um, and they would then come back to college and they'd go back to their rooms and prepare it and bring it back. And then we'd have uh, like a come dine with me and, and, and they'd all kind of, they'd all chip in and, and, and they would try each other's. Um, and, um, and that was great because there was real buy-in from them because it was all interactive. Uh, and because you're getting them to solve the problems, there's a real sense of self-efficacy that they can actually do it. Um, you know, and that's, and that's what we're trying to do with that age group is we're trying to make them self-sufficient. We're trying to make them confident in the fact that they've got these resources and kind of underlying knowledge is all there. They just got to piece it all together. Um, and so we would try and do that really interactively through workshops. Um, and then as the need arises with, with, with guys that might require um, a period of, of putting on more lean mass or have, have a need to lose um, some body fat, then we would, we, we might get a little bit more bespoke with them to explore um, reasonings behind that. And then the nutritionists that came on board later on were fantastic in terms of, um, well, one guy, um, they were both great, but um, Charlie Beeston in particular, who I've done some stuff with on Instagram recently is, is really keen on looking at, the behavior frameworks behind what, why they were making the choices they were making and trying to get them to see how they could uh, kind of habit stack effectively to, to make choices and change a bit more susceptible, uh, a little bit more sustainable, especially when they were going home 
you know how some parents are feeders of their of their children um and you know they they college where they're really focused on on making good choices and then they go home and mum is making them all the cooked meals under the sun with all the best intentions and undoing a lot of the work that you've put in in that six or seven week half term block um and so just giving them the skills I actually trying to speak to the parents and involve the parents with look they're going to be coming home for the summer when they come back at pre-season we want them to try and be in this shape which is going to mean that they need meals that look like this and so we would do stuff with parents as well we would do it during pre-season times we would do kind of some educational stuff with parents um, and then perhaps on a day where they'd be coming to pick them up at the end of a term we might do something on that day as well just to go right just remember guys that they're home for the week and we want them maintaining their training we want them doing this and that and, and and everything else so yeah we would get as many resources together as we could and as many different coaches and practitioners together as we could and then parents and then athletes and involve them all in the process it's a really interesting one isn't it because that that age around sort of 16 17 18 there's still it's a bit of a kind of gray area isn't it where you know when you speak to kids at like 10 12 there's no really there's not a huge amount of of purpose in educating them on what sort of foods to buy because they're not the ones doing the food shop but as athletes get older there's a bit of a blend isn't there where okay now they've got a bit of, of cash from mum and dad they're buying their own food um, as you say when they go home they probably revert back to to being the child and mum mum and dad will do the cooking again so it's a really interesting approach to take that combined and try and i guess a two-pronged attack one at the athletes themselves one at the parents because it's easy to I guess, put the responsibility on the athlete. But realistically, there's a huge amount of parental involvement when it comes to things like nutrition, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. No, there has to be. Um, and unless you involve them, you're just making it really hard for the athlete. You're making, like, you're putting a really big hurdle in the way. You know, when they finish kind of college at the end of, of June and they're not coming back until September, you know, they've got all of July, all of August. They've got eight, nine, maybe 10 weeks. University students have got even longer where where they're going to be completely self-reliant and not have access to you as the practitioner quite so much, but they're probably going to be eating home cooked meals, which on one hand is fantastic. And if you could steer and guide the parents a little bit and send some resources and we would send kind of ideas to them as well. You know, we had nutritionists put together kind of little mini recipe books, you know, to go, these options are great. You know, and just giving them the fundamental principles around, you know, what a healthy plate looked like in terms of um, having some bright, colourful fruit and veg uh, kind of vegetables on your plate, a little bit of um, starchy, more higher glycemic kind of carbohydrate source, and then a and then a protein source on what they would look like. So just giving the parents, not being too um, formal or too restrictive, or giving them too many. Um, rules and regulations but literally just giving them fundamental principles of this is what a healthy plate should look like and within that remit make sure that that's that's how you're feeding a child who you you are hoping is going to make a career out of their sport um and when they see that kind of that you've got the the best interests not just of their future career but of their um of their child's health and well-being um there's a lot of buy-in there then mm. i mean it really comes back to what you're saying earlier about being a lot more holistic you know right back to when you're saying about being a personal trainer and realizing you've got this knowledge but actually there's a human being in front of you that has time limitations budget restrictions all these other things going on in life and uh i think it's funny because people think about performance as really being all about 
you know, what happens on the pitch or what happens in the boat. Uh, and, you know, okay, S&C is we're just going to make you bigger, faster, stronger. But actually, there's a whole lot of things that underpin performance that we probably don't think of as performance, like, you know, budgeting, for example, like being able to, to go to the shop, as you said, with a specific budget and, and buy food that fits within that budget and is nutritious or just one that I struggle with all the time. It's just scheduling your time, understanding where you need to be and when and how long it's going to take you to get there. Now, we don't think of that as being something that determines performance. But if you're constantly late to training, you're not getting picked, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's really basic things and habits that sometimes we maybe would take for granted that people would arrive with, but often don't. And how much do you think those kind of basic life skills can limit progress and performance if they're not in place? Oh, massively so, especially when you're dealing with an academic athlete. You know, somebody who's got to balance a degree or three or four A-levels. Like, three or four A-levels is tough. You know, it's incredibly tough. And it's that's hard when you're living at home and you've got all that parental support. And I'm going to think about what you're eating. You just, you, you get home and a meal is cooked for you. You know, so when you've got to start to factor in all of these other things, um, and that's where I go back to my kind of athlete-centered and person-centered approach um as soon as i changed that it it opened up oh my word you know yeah okay so i see them for that one hour gym slot and they've got an hour of rugby but what's going on here the 22 hours of the day they've got six hours of lectures plus then they've got a study group in the evening um and they've got to try and try and find time to eat get their coursework done um some of them have got to prepare meals because they don't eat in the refectory um you just start to realize, you know, how time poor these athletes end up being. And if they don't manage that precious commodity of time well, or if they don't prioritize, you know, and because at that age, when they're 16 to 18, when they've got free time, it's lazy time, right? That's Xbox time. That's, that's, that's nap time. That's whatever. And, and we would promote the nap if they could take one in the middle of the day because they had a free period. Fantastic. But, you know, they might have to wash their clothes. They might not have any any clean kit left so they might that that free time isn't free some of that's they they need to kind of highlight um you know what what other tasks have they got what other life tasks have they got that have got some kind of timeline but if you haven't got any clean kit for training tomorrow morning and the coach is a stickler for you wearing heart rebranded kit clean kit to a training session you need to wash and dry that kit asap um and so we just try and to build in those life skills. Um, and it was probably about four years after I started there that we brought in a lifestyle coach, like a TAS accredited lifestyle coach to start to work on these things a little bit more and have somebody who was totally devoted to this dual career kind of aspect of being a student athlete. Um, and that was really useful as well then to kind of link in with the coaches, to link in with um, academic staff. So we had an we had an under we had an A level student female who got called up into the full England squad for rugby in her second year of her A levels. So the start of the second year of her A levels, she played in the autumn internationals against Canada, and she was basically away for a month. She was in camp with England for almost a month. She came back to college for a couple of days. Um, and then between us as the support team, the coaches and the academic staff, we managed to get coursework to her parents. 
And if you go back and you watch the game, if you look at the highlight or the end of the game, because she, I think she scored two tries on her debut as well. She was incredible. Um, and so they were interviewing her after the game. And as soon as the interview finished, her mum was there on the sideline handing her the coursework when she was literally <laughs> finishing her, her international, international debut. Um, and that all comes through, um, through that kind of back room staff kind of communication and support for that athlete because we understand the fact that she's because of her her desire to become a professional athlete and she's now in the England 7 setup which is fantastic and she's centrally contracted which is brilliant um but at that point in time she was she was in a dual career pathway because you know female rugby is not a not a certainty in terms of you know, providing a, a career in the short term or the long term so unfortunately um and so you know it was very much of paramount importance that her studies weren't compromised and she had to balance and manage her time so she would go back to the hotel room in the evening have the team debrief and then go and do her a-level coursework mm. um you know and all of those things were put in place by getting her to understand um you know the difference between urgent and non-urgent tasks and um uh, and important and non-important tasks, you know, it's basically using the Eisenhower matrix with a 16 and 17 year old, you know, it's, it's a kind of tool that we use with some of our corporate clients and executives to understand how to, how to balance all of their, um, all of their responsibilities. And yet we were using the same methodology with a 16, 17 year old female rugby player. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's funny when you were talking about, you know, actually just the importance of getting your washing done. A story sprang to mind in my head of a player that, that was uh, in the setup that, that I was in and he uh, had been called up to train with the pro team and obviously been given the kit and all that kind of stuff. But he'd done exactly what you said. He didn't, didn't wear the right kit. And in this particular team, the rule was if someone turned up the wrong kit, you, the whole squad had to do a full pitch of bear crawls. Now you're talking about a kid who's just walked into a pro team who got with guys who just come back from the rugby world cup and, and basically the snc coach pulled him aside and said look i'm not going to highlight this because these boys will tear you to shreds but be warned if this happens again you're getting it um and, it, and it's funny because we don't think about the impact of something like washing might have on your experience at training but actually that life admin can be huge and especially as you say with someone who's doing academics you know if you're not scheduling that hour of study or whatever for the upcoming exams suddenly that pressure, mental pressure builds and your performance is starting to go down the drain. And actually, it's nothing to do with the rugby. It's to do with the fact that you haven't prepared properly for these exams because you haven't scheduled your time. But it starts to show on the pitch. And I think those basic life, life admin kind of tasks are so crucial, but people really don't give them the credit that they're, that they're due. Yeah, and that's just a, you know that's the perception of what it takes to be an athlete, right? You know, people see, people see the end product. They don't see the hours of training that go in behind and they don't see what it takes to actually be organized enough to get your training done and to be fully recovered for the following day. And they, they, there's just a, a lack of comprehension of the fact that they've still got to lead a normal life and do what everyone else is doing. Mm. Um, um, and, that, um, and that's a real eye-opener, um, particularly for the student-athlete that's going through it. Um, you know, when, when, when they're moving away from home in particular and they've got to be completely self-sufficient, um, you know, um, those those life skills are of fundamental importance because life doesn't stop just because you're an athlete, um, and that's a steep that's a steep learning curve for them. It really is.
Mm. Um, and it doesn't take long for things to catch up if you haven't spoken to that lecturer saying, actually, I'm going to be away for the Six Nations. And suddenly you're getting marked down as being absent for six weeks in a row and getting kicked out. And actually, it was all because of a legitimate reason that you hadn't bothered to communicate. Yeah, and that and that's happened as well, where we've had to do a, a retrospective kind of extenuating circumstance because they haven't they haven't let people know, you know, and there's an, and and I've taken that on as as my fault, you know. You want to talk about kind of Jocko Will ex, extreme ownership? I took that on as my fault because I hadn't I hadn't foreseen it. I'd have just expected that you know that individual would have told their lecturers that they were going to be away because it's a massive deal what they're doing. You know, they, they're traveling out to, out to wherever for a, for a British rowing camp. And you would have thought that any sensible person would have told their lecturers that they were going to be away. And all of a sudden we're going, um, someone who hasn't been to his lectures for four days. And we're like, Oh yeah, he's in Switzerland. What's he doing up there? Oh, okay. Um, and then we've had to fill in, um, like a retrospective extenuating circumstances because they've missed a they missed a coursework deadline. Um, and I took that on as my fault because that person's a kid mm. <laughs> with a very with a very complicated set of problems in front of them. And me as one of the adults in their in their support network should have foreseen that and kind of dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that that's one of those I go back to my experiences and my mistakes. That's one of the mistakes that actually sh- shaped our practice and go, right, we actually need to have some kind of fl- understanding of the lines of communications and some kind of systematic kind of diagram for how we deal with this when somebody gets selected for an international call up where they're going to be away. And so we then we then wrote the handbook for how that was going to work and who needed to be involved and informed and everything else. It's funny because I don't remember taking that module on how to teach a 16-year-old the timetable at uni. <laughs> yeah precisely right it's not not something that appears in the job description but something that's a reality so and tell then, us a bit and, about um what your new role looks like at hinsa what, what are you doing there what does that look like day to day so through hinsa i am contracted to mercedes amg hpp lot of acronyms there so hpp is the high performance powertrains it's where they build the f1 engine effectively so it's a it's basically a factory site i say basically it's unbelievable um it's an incredible facility um there's about well pre-lockdown there was about 1100 people working on site and we are what are called from a hinsa perspective coaches in residence so we are there full-time monday to friday and we're currently running what most people would see as like a corporate well-being center so they built a gym on site which is as you would imagine absolutely beautiful and we man that facility from 7 a.m to 7 p.m monday to friday and we run a curriculum of um kind of more gym-based classes where we do everything from everything's based around snc principles really of fundamental movement patterns and um movement quality and people's uh the tissue capacity and we do things that way and then we do more bespoke kind of shorter block what we call sprints and kind of four-week courses around more specialist areas of lower back health or olympic weightlifting for those who want to do it and we we do those things um as a 
on a, on a recreational basis really for them because obviously they're not athletes but the the premise is about having their workforce but optimizing their health their fitness their mental energy uh, managing any aches and pains educating them on sleep and um and good nutrition and habit formation and all those kinds of things to have them working at their very very best you know and i think of I think of the guys that I'm kind of assigned to, you know, the engineers and then the race day mechanics and um, and engineers as their cognitive athletes. You know, they need to be mentally on it all of the time. And then the mechanics who are working on the engine on a race day, you know, they've got funny working postures and, and those kinds of things. And so we want them in really good shape to be able to work at their best in very high pressured environments. Um, so that's kind of what we do. Uh, it's a kind of a step away from sport, but you know we're still using as a team. We use athletic development principles to 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 work with um, a huge, a very wide uh, age demographic. Um, you know we've got um, we've got grad placement students there, so we have we have we have work placements and apprentices in that eighteen years old right the way up to guys who've been working in a factory and are. 60 years of age um, and then the same in terms of the the uh, the diversity of experience the diversity of levels of physical activity and motivation to do those things and motivations to change they're all over the place and so you know there's a lot of soft skill requirements around being able to use things like the self-determination theory of kind of improving people's motivations and relatedness and competence and self-efficacy to basically to in some cases to completely do a u-turn on their health and to have them um be be better and to live longer so mercedes have got their heart in the right place when it comes to you know it's not just about having them working better we want these people to be affected in a way that if they leave the company or when they retire that they're they they're leaving the company in a in a better physical state than when they came you know and if you look at that from a corporate well-being perspective that's enormous um and it's a i've been an absolute pleasure to be there for the past well i've been there a year mate it's crazy that's funny because it's it's really interesting you're describing that i'm thinking it, it sounds a lot like what you were doing at Hartbury, like in terms of okay they might not be you know athletes on the rugby pitch but we're optimizing nutrition sleep habits we're talking about See, the same things all over again it's exactly the same mate and and um i was uh headhunter is not the right word a friend of mine who worked with me at Hartbury was working for hinsa on this project in terms of getting the build off the ground mercedes have got two sites they've got the formula one site where they build the car and the and the, and the chassis and everything else which is the one that you see the majority of the time on any press releases that they do and then our site is about 40 minutes away to where they build the engine um and a friend of mine left Hartbury. I started working for Hinsa on this kind of dual project. And when they were looking for somebody to manage and, and run the facility and kind of lead the team there, I had a phone call. Um, I may, I think I've got the perfect gig for you. It's, it's almost identical to what you've been doing, but it's with a slightly kind of different demographic. Um, and from having that phone call to uh, having an interview with Pete McKnight, I think it was two weeks from the phone call and the interview with Pete to me actually starting the job. Um, 
And uh, yeah, but you are right. It's exactly the same principles. You know, some of these people have got a zero training age. Some of them have got one of the guys I work with on a one-to-one basis finished eighth in Kona in the Ironman World Champs in his age category. So like a very decent athlete. You know, he's run a he run a three and a half hour marathon off the bike. <laughs> um, like phenomenal athlete. Uh, we've got some we've got some international grade uh, climbers and boulderers there. You know, these guys are not just the best at what they do work wise. It's like they take everything to the max. Um, and but we've got guys working in the factory who are the best at what they do in terms of manufacturing, but they work in a factory and they're of that factory mindset in terms of, you know, that generation, you know, you want to be stereotypical. They're of, they're in that 50 to 60 age bracket and they never fry up in the morning and, and we're trying to change their kind of motivation to treat their bodies a little bit better um, and trying to build frameworks and engineer their environment so that we can, we can help them elicit kind of some sustainable change, you know, and we work with the restaurant on site as well. So we have to guide the, um, the content of the menus and the food is just incredible. Like it's phenomenal. Um, and so Mercedes has spent a lot of money on, on, um, on the nutritional side of thing and now on the physical activity side of thing. And, and from that gym perspective, you know, we do, we address the whole, we take it from a, a really holistic perspective, just like I was doing when I was running things at Harper, you know, we, we try and consider outside of that hour that we might spend with them the other 24 hours of the day, you know, and, 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 and writing them a really effective gym program or something that, that, that they feel like they can get their teeth into when they're only sleeping five hours a night and they're, and, and they're only having, only getting through a thousand calories a day um, or, or they're eating because they're really busy. They're just snacking on not ideal f- food sources because they're just running from one meeting to another, um, you know, uh, the 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 principles of what we're doing there are are identical it's just the methods by which we use them and how we communicate that to a a 40 year old executive is slightly different um because we're we're dealing with people around about kind of my age or plus or minus 10 years rather than a 16 year old and so how how you communicate that information across is different but the fundamental principles are exactly the same. So that leads nicely into this next question. So are you think, what do you think coaches need to be working on? So we mentioned obviously having that, you know, three, four, five years of, of knowledge at university, but then having to translate to a human being in front of you. Are there any skills or characteristics that you think coaches themselves need to develop beyond just that content knowledge when they're coaching human beings? Yeah, I mean, you've got to put the person first, not the athlete, not what you're seeing in front of you. You need to, you know, we, and I was incredibly guilty of this early on in my coaching career. And I say early on because I'm, I'm 19 years of coaching at this point. Um, you want to show, you want to show the athlete, you want to show the client that you know best, that you've got all the answers. When... They already know that. That's why they've come to you. Um, but if you don't show care for them, they're not going to care. You know, it's the old Eleanor Roosevelt quote of people don't care how much you know until you know how much you care. Right? Um, and so you've got to put the person first. You've got to make them see that this, this, you've got to give them autonomy within a 
a structured framework to be able to make their own choices. You know, and that takes an element of humility as a coach because you want them to do exactly what you think is best and you do know best as a coach. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that if you give them some autonomy, the chances of them doing something where there's less autonomy in the long run, where you really need them to do something for you or for them, that's, you know, it's going to be incredibly difficult. You've built a relationship with them and had some more collaboration with them, if you like, you know, with, with the younger guys who the gym environment really wasn't uh, natural for them. So a lot of my netballers, a lot of the modern pentathletes, the equine athletes we used to work with, like the gym environment, you should scare the living daylights out of them. So part of the autonomy, whilst I needed them to do a very set program because they could only, you know, we were working on a, on a glute bridge and a, and a squat to a bench, you know, with some of these guys, they were absolutely kind of terrible from, an, uh, from a movement perspective. And so the only autonomy I could really give them was, do you know what, you can connect your phone to the Bluetooth and you can select the music today. And like the instant buy-in from, you know, having to endure their music choice for 45 minutes to an hour, right? But the, the intent and the buy-in and the fact that they've gone, Oh, thank you for that because I love music and it really it really helps me. At which point, then you know they can see you've got their best interests at heart. And even though you're going to get them to do stuff they really don't want to do, they've got less of an issue doing it. So the intent completely changes. Like your post this morning about kind of having that that pre-session kind of briefing. That's hugely important. Once they know why they're doing it, if an athlete believes in you and what you're saying their intent and, and their desire to do it completely changes, um, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a balance of, of compromise collaboration, well, compromise cooperation and collaboration, you know, and you want to get the athlete to the point where they feel like they're collaborating and that's going to take some compromise on your part, you know, and that's in a kind of a spectrum and it's, it's great to talk about, but you've just got to do it and you've got to, you know, we talked about before we started this, we talked about another Dunning-Kruger effect. And when you're at the height of that, you feel bulletproof and everything, everything circles around you and what you expect of the athlete rather than being other way around. You are the support team. You are there to serve the athlete or the client. Um, and that's really important to learn. You know, you can write the most fantastic program in the world in terms of the sets and reps and the intensities and, and the density of the session and get the exercise selection right. If that person doesn't engage, that program's not worthless, but it's definitely not optimal. You know, the best program you can write is the one that the athlete's going to actually engage in. Um, and that takes, and like you said, there's no module on, on communication and soft skills and, and coaching cues and you know how to how to connect with another human being at a level that requires you know a lot of trust because they have got no idea what to do a lot of them um and that just takes some real time to develop and often oftentimes it comes through learning really painful lessons mm. it's, it's funny you, as well i think you're probably <coughs> the height of that dunning kruger effect where you think you know everything is where you're probably actually the use, least useful because you're not oh, engaging mate. with anyone around you and helping them come to their own conclusions and helping them engage. Absolutely. I was standing on a stool, banging the drum of look at me, look how much I know, look how great I am as coach. And that was all about me. And that was literally like within about six months of me being at Harpery because I was now like the lead of a program. 
like you know, and a fairly successful university and college program at the time. And it went from strength to strength in the time that we were there. Um, and then like you start to, as part of that, you start to be so certain of what you know, but you've got no clue what you don't. You know, and that's from a technical coaching perspective and from a fact that like you're just not connecting with your athletes. You know, you're not taking time to get to know them, you know, and in those times you become so ignorant to each individual walking in that I wouldn't notice that one of my girls was coming in and has been a bit teary. And, you know, when you start to be aware of that and you're coming in and you just, the greatest monitoring tool you've got is how are you? Like, and sometimes they haven't even got to answer you. You see it in their face and their eyes that, oh, bloody hell, I'm going to need to change the program a little bit here, or I'm going to have to manage this person a little bit softly. Um, and like, that's as soon as you start to realize that you've got two eyes and two ears and one mouth for a reason, you know, how someone is standing in the corner of a gym tells you a lot about where their head's at with regards to what you're asking them to do. Um, and all it'll take is one question, you know, if it's appropriate, a hand on the shoulder and you're working with 15 to 18 year old girls, you, the safeguarding issues are obviously um, elevated, but, but just putting the person right back at the center of that and realizing that you're not the center of things. You are the conductor, you are the guider, you are the um, other person, you, you're the shepherd in that sense. You know, the sheep are the commodity and you are the person who's trying to kind of shepherd them into the pen and keep them safe and develop them to get them to be um, what they need to be, you know, turning them from, from lambs into rams. Yeah, I think it's funny, as you were kind of des describing that, it made me think of like, okay, you, can, you might be the expert on training, or the expert on nutrition, but th that athlete is the expert on themselves. And they, they know all this background and context you don't have, like you said, how many hours they slept, whether they've got a collection next, all that kind of stuff. And you don't get that information without asking, but you have to have the humility to go, let's have a, you know, a human conversation. What else is going on in your life at the moment? How's, how's uni going? How's, you know, are you missing home? Are you, how would you have a breakfast? Like you actually have to have a human person to person conversation, not right. Let's go. We're going to here to do work. We've got no time to chat. This isn't about fun. This is about hard work. All that's going to do is grind people into the ground, isn't it? Yeah. And the thing is, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. Like they know it's going to be physically and mentally hard work whether or not you're doing a pitch-based conditioning session or whether or not you've got them in the gym or whatever it might be. They know it's going to be physically uncomfortable, you know, but when you put the person at the center and as you get, you get to know how best to coach them as well and how to get the best out of them. And there was some, there's some of my athletes that I, I knew I could shout the coaching crew right across the room. I could call their name out and I could say, Oi, you need to do this next time or make sure that remember that what whatever the cue is going to be. Um, there are others that as you get to know them, you realize that that is the worst thing. I just put them at the center of the room. I just shone a spotlight on them. And everyone, they feel like everyone's looking at them. And like, that's completely the worst thing that I, I could have done. And as you start to learn that and you learn about them and how introverted they are or how insecure they are, when I want to go and give a coaching cue, you walk right over and you just whisper it in the ear. That way, no one else has seen it. You've just done it as you're walking past the platform or the rack. You don't get that when you're so focused on your performance as a coach and everyone seeing you as the center of that session. And until you, you recognize that, 
and you change that, um, uh, you're not as as an effective coach as you as you think you are. Um, and, and, that's a, and that's a lesson that really doesn't get taught until you're in the field. And unless you've got a mentor helping you through that as a young coach, it's, it's a long process of a number of years to figure out, well, why can't I get that person to do what I want them to do? Why aren't they listening? Because I'm telling them the right way. I'm telling them louder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just and louder I, and louder. Yeah. And, and then at which point you go, well, you know what? They obviously don't want to be here. So I'll go and spend my time with someone who does. And actually they're crying out for your help. They're just not confident enough to come and ask for it. You know, and so they'll just kind of, they'll fuddle on, not knowing how to fix it because they don't have that kind of motor control or whatever it is that, you know, you're, that, that they're missing. Um, it might be that you need a change of exercise. It might be that you just need one coaching cue, one powerful cue that's going to completely flip that switch and they'll, and they'll get it right. Um, and it's down to us as the coach to just, you know, explore as many avenues as possible to, to how we how we get those messages across. Um, and so that, that would be like in terms of skills, you know, when you, if you've done a, if you've done a degree with a sandwich year with some coaching experience at a club or an institution in that, and then you're backing that up with a master's alongside some coaching, you know, by that point, you're five years through your academic studies with maybe a year, year and a half or two years of working experience of, co- you know, kind of hands-on coaching, you're in a good position technically. Yes, you're still going to learn and develop new things and, and realize how contextual everything is. And there's always that, well, it depends. But you're working with soft, squidgy, kind of irrational organisms on a daily basis that are, you know, that are dealing with their parents breaking up at home or the fact that they're, they've got four pieces of work they've got to hand in tomorrow and they've been completely overwhelmed with it or they're, the the fire alarm went off in their block three times between two o'clock and six o'clock in the morning. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, and and you not changing your coaching style to each and every individual in the room, be it five people in the room or twenty five people in the room. That's your problem as a coach. That's nothing to do with them. Um, and yeah, that's a that's a learning curve. And us as coaches, we got to deal with the same thing. We've got to deal with perhaps our parents breaking up or 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 our kids not sleeping, or having had a ridiculously long working day. And, you know, we've got to be aware of all those things and how they drive our behaviours and the way that we communicate um, and try and comp- compartmentalise those things so they don't overflow in those environments. We don't take it out on the athletes or the clients around us. Mate, it's really messy. <laughs> <laughs> That's human interactions, isn't it? Yeah. So, no. Given given your the, the the part of the spectrum you were operating in at Hartbury between sort of sixteen into university, if you could like speak to the person who who prepared that athlete before they came to you, is there anything you would you know request or, or advise them based on your experience of that at that age group of athletes coming through, whether it is those basic life school skills or just fundamental movements or you know if you could make a request and say look it would really help me out if you would focus on this, what would that be? It would be great if PE in schools was PE. If it was physical education, right the way through key stage four of teaching adolescent kind of bodies to move better. 
to move through full ranges of emotion. Like I don't, I don't particularly care how strong athletes are at 16. This, you know, it's kind of irrelevant really, but if their movement quality is good, if they've got movement through pretty decent range, you know, if they can, if they can balance on one leg, if they can walk a balance beam, if they can throw and catch a ball, you know, if those fundamental movement skills and physical literacy are there, you've got a nice canvas to work with now, rather than having to build the frame of the canvas before you start actually nailing the canvas down on it and then start painting it. Um, so from a, from a strength and conditioning and athletic development perspective, I would love PE to be PE and to be, you know, an, an education on how to move your body. Um, from a non-athletic perspective and everything else that backs that up, um, I would, you know, we, we, we tried to speak to a lot of incoming parents. So once we knew what the intake was going to be, we would start conversations with parents about kind of um, the importance of sleep, the importance of, of good fueling and what that would look like. So we had this little kind of um, scholarship handbook or incoming athlete handbook that we would send out around the fundamental kind of pillars of training, rest and recovery, sleep and nutrition. Um, and a little bit about how busy life would be at college. When we do open days, we kind of give give the the prospective students a bit of insight into like a day in the life of an athlete and what it's going to take and how organised they're going to have to be and how what resources they've got to fall back on in terms of their tutors and the wellbeing department and mental health team and their coaches and the support the support and the performance support services. And, on all those kinds of things and just making them aware of those things before they come. Um, you know, it's not, it was nowhere near perfect because every home is different. Some of, some, some of the kids that come to us came from very affluent backgrounds with, with wonderful family support. Others were, were single parent families on, um, uh, living on benefits and they were coming to us on full scholarships. So their accommodation was taken care of. And so, you try and give them some fundamental principles to hang their hat on. And rather than saying, you know, your, your evening meal needs to contain salmon and asparagus and, uh, and you, you could do that for maybe 5% of the families. And then the others are looking at it and going, well, I've never had salmon because I can't afford it. And so you just, we would send them out a list of some real kind of guiding fundamental principles of this is what they're going to these are the skills they're going to need to develop outside of their sport of, and habits they're going to need to be good at to ensure their success. Um, and so again, it comes back to that kind of, it's a dual pronged kind of approach to the athletic side of thing and the personal side of thing. And you've got to consider both. You just have to. Um, and it's the same as us as a coach as well. You know, we've got to, we've got to consider how we develop ourselves technically as a coach and then also how we develop ourselves in all the other aspects you know if you're going to be a coach who's going to run a business and you're going to work in the private sector and then, then there's other things that lie outside of coaching that you need to kind of grow and develop in you know and then um, as you go through life there's lots of other facets of your life that you've got to learn new skills in um, and so can we as 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 coaches and part of a multidisciplinary support team, be more aware of all of the complexities that lie around that 16 year old when they're coming to us. You know, what's their, what's, um, what's their 
home environment like? Um, how much adversity have they dealt with? Because some of those guys are actually the best ones to have. You know, the more adversity a 16-year-old has had, the more robust they're going to be with. You know, they're, if they're a latchkey kid and they're a single they're part of a single parent home and the parents are working when they come home, then they probably have to make their own food anyway or, or kind of fend for themselves for a couple of hours. You know, I was blessed with having both my parents at home and home cooked meals and kind of almost babysat until I was 18 and went to university. So my life skills at 18 were awful, absolutely terrible. Um, and you have to learn them very quickly. And so um, just giving consideration to, go back to your original question because I've gone off on one of my crazy tangents. Um, PE needs to be PE so that everyone's got a good foundation by the time you get them at 16. I think that's a, that's a, that should be a right, not a privilege because whether or not they're going to go and try and chase sport as their career, um, um, everybody should have the right to a healthy body at 16 year old, you know, at 16 years old. And then, be in a position to kind of maintain that throughout their life. Whereas, you know, you see 16 year olds coming to you and, and they've already got several kind of dysfunctions and it just shouldn't be that way. Um, and so I would love that to be the case, but that's a much bigger kind of fish to fry than, than, than that's way above my, way above my, uh, my current paycheck, I'm afraid. Um, so are there any resources that you would recommend to coaches of young athletes? Um, I guess it depends where they're working. Um, you know, are they working with them in, the, working with them in, a, in an academy setup? Are they working with them in a, in a school institution? Is it a private school where they're boarding? Um, um, I think that's pretty contextual. You know, there's, there's lots of things that lie outside of um, dealing with adolescent athletes and peak height velocities and maturation. I think there's lots of resources there, you know, that we could, that we could talk through from Rodri Lloyd stuff to James Baker's resources. You know, there's some fantastic um, technical kind of models and, and resources out there. But for me, it would be more around both skills and an understanding of, of the neurology and, the, and and kind of on a neuroscience behind what an ad, why an adolescent is the way they are and an understanding of the formation of the prefrontal cortex and why you know up to the age of 25 you're pretty rubbish at making decisions <laughs> um, just because your prefrontal cortex isn't 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 fully formed you know and understanding the neurochemistry and all of the those kind of what makes an adolescent the crazy little kind of ball of energy that they often are. Understanding what's going on under the hood is, is probably where I would um, spend a bit more time kind of learning. And when, when you start to understand, you know, how the, how the brain is still forming at that point in time, you start to go, oh, that's why they've made that decision. That's why they weren't listening. That's why that I didn't get that point across the way I wanted it to. Um, you know, and if, if you're if you're working in a university environment or as part of a multidisciplinary team within a within a club, there's definitely some kind of great resources. When I when my role changed at Harbury and I moved from just being like an SNC coach, a lead SNC coach with two other SNC coaches, to taking on the nutritionist and the lifestyle and part time 
uh, sports sites. So we had like, I went from managing one other full-time and a part-time to over the course of five years, managing 13 other people. Um, and then having to deal with academics and having to deal with both HE and FE um, and um, a wellbeing and counselling team and safeguarding and the medical team within the sports academy, reading books like Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams and understanding the whole kind of why silos don't work, um, and but also the why there's such a perceived threat level of people within those silos when you try and kind of break those silos down. It's like, I'm not trying to do your job for you, but I actually need your, your help. You need to come and see what we're doing um, and to build that level of transparency. So those, that was a, an incredible read for me of flipping heck. This is why we're frustrated because we're working in silos and they really don't work. And even a, um, even a multidisciplinary approach doesn't really work. It needs to be integrated. You know, you need to have people from each department in other people's departments on a regular basis. Um, more recently about getting to shape behaviors, like James Clear's Atomic Habits has been an incredible resource for me on that front. Um, and if I went back and I looked at when I was doing the nutrition support at Harpery as well, you know, I was, when you start to realize, when you take, when you try and shape people's environments to make them successful, you know, it might be that we were asking an athlete to, to do a little bit more soft tissue work or their rehab. And rather than them having to come down to the bottom of campus every time to do it a couple of times a day, we give them the mini band and the foam roller and the lacrosse fall or the therabands or whatever it was. But of course they put them in their bag and then they sit in their bag. So it's like, okay, how do we shape their environment to, to make them, to kind of remind them to do it? And it would be that their TheraBand would have to be tied on the door handle of their room. So every time they walked to it before they left, they would do their rotator cuff exercises or whatever it was. Um, and just, you know, five, six, seven years on from that and then reading Atomic Habits, you go in, Yes, that was that was it. And to have some kind of framework now around the habit loop of how to help people create better habits around their sleep, around their nutrition, around all of the little things that lie behind what makes an athlete an athlete is incredible. You know, and, and these are books that have nothing to do with coaching. They have nothing to do with S and C or or anatomy and physiology or the adaptation kind of response to training. But they'll make you a better they make you a better coach. Um, um, it's it's a, so, bit, a bit of the irony. It's like, if you think it has nothing to do with coaching, you probably need to read it. <laughs> yeah. You know, going and going back and being able to regurgitate every page of super training is great. It's a great party trick. But, um, you know, you'll have enough of the fundamental principles by the time you're being a coach for a couple of years to program, to write a good program. But, um you can't connect with that person then then it doesn't really matter so where can people connect with you and find out more about what you're doing um instagram is probably best really um, i'm trying to stay clear of twitter because during lockdown it's become even more toxic than normal um so um at better human performance um is where my more work related stuff is kind of going on now um um, I've got a personal Instagram page as well, but that's probably where I'd sign post people to is there. Um, 
and then um, they can email me if they really want to. Um, and you've got my email address, which you can uh, which you can put in the show notes if you really want to. But yeah, at Better Human Performance on Instagram is probably the best. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Owen. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. I really enjoyed it. I mean, thanks for having me on. Uh, given the, um, the the standard and experience of people you've had on recently, um, I'm, um, I'm I'm certainly honoured to have come on and been able to chat for a bit. Um, definitely not. I haven't got the experience of Kelvin. I haven't been on last week, and I love listening to him. Um, so uh, thanks for what you're doing, mate. It's um, it's a great resource for the industry for sure. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your knowledge as well. No problem. Cheers. <laughs> I'm not going to